Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a second of your time, possibly like 30 seconds. Then uh, when you register, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, enter other people. All one word. And spell out people. O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. And when you do that... You're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of this program will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to lots of other amazing content as well, always available on demand without syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go get it. Get it at the App Store. Get it at Stitcher.com. Available for your iPhone, your Android, your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code other people when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, stupid, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is more of what you downloaded. This is two complete strangers improvising. How's it going out there? What's happening? What are you doing? My name is Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in uh, Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. Nicholas Grider is my guest today. He has a collection of short stories available now. It's called Misadventure, and it's available from a small press uh, down in Austin, Texas, that is called A Strange Object. So uh, I had a very fascinating and often unexpected uh, conversation with Nicholas. You're going to hear that momentarily. First, however, uh, I do have a few uh, quick thoughts. Uh, I want to thank everybody who emailed me in response to last, uh, the last episode's monologue. Uh, I appreciate those emails and those good wishes. Uh, for those of you who you know, don't have context, my wife and I uh, went through our fourth miscarriage uh, of the past year about a week ago. So, uh, you know, I don't mean to spill personal problems into this show too much, but it was one of those days and I had to sit in front of the microphone and, you know, 
So I appreciate everybody sending uh, good thoughts. It's very nice of you. Uh, and I read them all, even if I, if, even if I wasn't able to respond to everything. So, uh, otherwise, uh, there's not that much to say. It's been sort of a quiet week. Uh, otherwise I went to, uh, skylight books last night. I went over there to say hello to, uh, Roxanne Gay. She was in town on her book tour. Uh, I had some friends that, that were going to be there. Uh, it just felt like a nice social thing to do. The only wild card was that I had my daughter with me. She's, uh, like three and a half going on four. And I was on dad duty, uh, that afternoon, that evening. But I figured, uh, since Roxanne was in town and, uh, you know, I wanted to go say hi, I would just swing by. Yeah, it's a bookstore. I'd take my daughter to the bookstore. I'd get her a book and maybe depending on how she was feeling, how tired she was, how antsy, maybe we would stay for the reading, but it quickly became apparent that that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> You know, kids are too squirrely. I can barely sit through a reading. So we show up at the bookstore. Uh, my daughter gets to pick out a book. She picks out The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein, uh, who, you know, God bless him. He was one of my favorite authors as a kid. Uh, I still love him. But his author photo on the back of The Giving Tree, genuinely terrifying. My daughter was uh, startled. <laughs> so we do that. Uh, I said hello to Zoe Ruiz, a uh, friend of mine here in Los Angeles, formerly the uh, editor or managing editor over at the Rumpus. Uh, who else was there? XTX was there. Lisa Meacham was there. So it was Lisa and XTX and Roxanne. They were all sitting together prior to the reading. And I got a copy of Roxanne's book and I went over and was saying a quick hello and congratulations. And uh, I got Roxanne to sign the book. And my daughter was there and it was one of those things where, you know, I was trying to mingle and I was trying to, you know, operate as an adult in an adult context, but I had uh, this, my kid with me. I should know better. You know, it's hard to do that. It's hard to be in an adult situation with a young child and to operate as a, as an adult conversationally, because your kid is standing there. She was kind of pulling on my leg. She doesn't know what to do. So I'm saying hello to Roxanne. I'm saying hello to uh, XTX and Lisa. And uh, I'm trying to kind of introduce my daughter in the flow of the conversation. And in what I suppose you would just call a moment of uh, deep social awkwardness, uh, I said to uh, the ladies, I said, ladies, uh, this is my daughter, Evan. And then I said, Evan, uh, curtsy for the, for the nice ladies. <laughs> Yeah, which immediately drew uh, a gasp, confusion, some frightened laughter, perhaps. I don't know what it was. Who does that? Who asks their young child to curtsy for a gathering of adults in the year 2014? I don't know what I was saying, you know? It's one of those moments where I sort of feel like my dad. It's the kind of thing my dad would do. <laughs> I don't know. I've never asked my daughter to curtsy once in my life. I don't know what the fuck I was doing. Curtsy. So, for all of you ladies listening, I promise you, that's not normal behavior. Is that like uh, anti-feminist or something to ask your daughter to curtsy? I feel like I violated some sort of code. But uh, it was a funny moment. I was the butt of the joke. So that happened. 
And uh, what else? I don't know what else. There was a robbery in my neighborhood last night a few blocks over, but I don't want to talk about that. It's sort of dark. You know, I was out walking my dog when it happened. Maybe I'll talk about it at the uh, at the end of the show. I want to keep the mood light. I feel like the mood needs to be light in these monologues, especially in light of recent uh, monologues. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So let's get on with the show. Let's just go there. My guest is Nicholas Greider. His story collection, Misadventure, is available now from a strange object. Uh, I think you guys are going to like this one. That's my wager. Here he is, folks. This is Nicholas Greider, and his book, once again, is called Misadventure. Uh, well, I'm in Milwaukee. I'm on the southeast sort of corner of Milwaukee, a neighborhood called Bayview. Um, it's about 10 blocks from the lake. Um, and uh, yeah, it's about 10 minutes south of downtown. I've lived in Bayview on and off since 2002. Um, I, um, and what, where I currently at physically am at right now, I'm in my one bedroom apartment, um, in Bayview. Um, it, kind of just sitting in front of my work desk slash computer desk slash sort of office area. Okay. So you work from home. I mean, cause you do, um, you, you're sort of a hybrid, you're a visual artist and a writer, um, is, are you doing everything in that apartment? Uh, well, yeah, it, uh, I mean, uh, as, when I work on paintings, it's in the apartment, but, um, most of my work is photography. So it's, it's, um, kind of offsite stuff. Like me. I have a thing later this afternoon to go take some pictures of the synagogue. Um, so I, I need to go, uh, get there by four o'clock to take some photos for them. Oh, okay. So you make, do you make your living with your photography and that does that subsidize your writing? Uh, well, I, I mean, I make a little bit of money at both, and then I just kind of scratch things together uh, with odd jobs and things like that. Yeah, that sounds familiar. So uh, you, you were born and raised in, in Wisconsin? Because that's my, I mean, we talked a little bit before we came on, but that's my, my hometown. That's where I was born. So, uh, I mean, are you a lifer? You've been in Wisconsin your whole life? Yeah, uh, except there are three years that I was in L.A. Um, when I was in grad school. But other than that, I've been in Milwaukee uh, first um, in Brown Deer, where I grew up, which is a suburb on the north side of the city, and then the cities are basically kind of a, a, a tall rectangle, so it's on the north side of that. And then uh, on the now I'm living since 2002 mostly on the southeast side. You like so you like it? Uh, it has its you know ups and downs. There's parts that I like. There's 
parts that I really don't like. I really love Los Angeles, so I'm hoping to get back there at some point, but I, I don't have a really a, a firm plan for um, any of that kind of stuff right now because I'm, I'm looking at going back to school and, and doing stuff like that. So um, I'm just sort of planning for that the first year or so ahead. I'm not doing too much um, planning beyond that. So what are you going to go back to school for? Uh, well, eventually medical school. So I'm, I'm starting, uh, I'm already shadowing a doctor, but I uh, start uh, classes on the 27th, pre-med classes. No shit. How did that, okay, so that's an interesting move because uh, you have like this background in visual art and you got a, a literary interest and you want to be a medical doctor? Uh, yeah, I mean, it just sort of, I, I mean, my 37th birthday was a couple of weeks ago and I just... Um, it's been a very interesting winter in, in terms of just sort of um, in, instead of kind of coasting and hoping that good luck comes my way and just sort of feeling like I can kind of give back to the world through my art and my writing, I, I just sort of more thinking, you know, I want to do something that helps people. I want to do something where I'm not in kind of a money panic all the time. I, I, it's not that I want to be really wealthy, but I just want to not worry about bills and debts and groceries and, and things like that. I want to not worry. And at the same time, five days a week, maybe six days a week, I'll be able to actually help people with their problems. So This sounds, um, this sounds totally familiar to me. This is how I feel. Like, But I'm not in medical school yet. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's like I think that's noble. And I, I think it's like a big struggle for a lot of people trying to figure out how to better. You know, a lot of people who are in uh, involved in creative pursuits trying to figure out uh, how to balance that ambition or that particular part of their, you know, person with financial concerns. And then also trying to like navigate the terrain between like, okay, so do I go all in on this and pursue my dreams full bore? Because that's the way the thing happens. You have to commit fully. Or, uh, do I elevate above that? Maybe my concern for other people and my desire to not be in a money panic, as you put it, which um, isn't, is not a pleasant thing, you know? So it's like, it's, it, it can get sticky because you don't know, like I, I struggle with all of that. Like what's the best road to go? So was there something particular that like, you know, set you, uh, on the course to medical school where you were like, you know, you finally made the decision because you read X or you saw Y? There were actually two sort of deciding things. To, um, and they're going to seem very far apart, but, um, not completely. The first thing is that I sort of reached a point in my writing and with my artwork where I could try to make work that's more um, accessible, more friendly to readers, more just easier for people. And I could try to sort of write writing that I'm not happy with in order to make other people happy, or I can just, if you know, I go to med school, I'm a doctor, I can write whatever kind of writing I want basically, and I can just, if I get published on small presses, I, I'm not, I don't have to worry about advances or contracts or PR. I just can write what I want. I can make the art that I want, and um, I, I don't have the pressure of, well, okay, I've got this novel, and I need to sort of scrub it so it's good enough for a major press, and so I can, I can go through that cycle, and I have to get an agent. And I, I, I sort of, it, it frees me from a lot of those kind of worries about Am I able to do the, the work that I actually want, or should I do work that I think other people are going to like? And then the other factor is just sort of I'm converting to Judaism, which is another sort of um, kind of big step, and it's a year-long process. But through that, it's just sort of the main edict because it basically it's, it's not even faith; it's just 
do good deeds, just be good, uh, do good things for other people. And so I'm wondering, you know, I'm not really a political kind of person. I, I go and everything, but I'm not like a, a political activist kind of person. And I'm not, um, you know, a, a really like a hunger campaign organizer kind of person. That's just not who I am. So I was thinking about med school anyway, and it, and it sort of uh, fulfills, um, a kind of need for both of those things. So, uh, you know, I sort of made the decision earlier this year and I've just been pursuing it. And the more I pursue it, uh, the more it seems like it's, it's probably the right decision. Okay. So what kind of doctor do you want to be? And, and like, and, and the conversion to Judaism, this has been a big winter. <laughs> yeah, it's been a very, it's been a very kind of, I, I, I mean, the, the word life changing is maybe a little overblown, but um, it's been, well, my life has really changed a lot. It, not necessarily my day-to-day life, but my kind of orientation to it. So, um, yeah, med school, I, I'm, right now I'm, I'm shadowing some uh, neuropsychologists um, who do the sort of clinical testing for people with head injuries, people with brain tumors, um, all sorts of different cases. So I'm there at the hospital a couple of days a week. Um, that's just a part of applying to med school is doing that shadowing. Um, so I think probably the kind of doctor would be either be neurologist or psychiatrist. Wow. Okay. I mean, and like, what about doing this at this stage of your life? Because that's a little unorthodox. You know, most people, they're doing their med school in their 20s. You said you're 37. So do you have any like... Yeah reservations or have you received any resistance from the academic community in terms of like how late you're getting started? Not really. Actually, the opposite is, is sort of the case. Uh, the doctors who I've talked to, um, especially uh, including started relatively late at 35, um, all said that actually people in med school in their 40s and even in their 50s is not an uncommon thing. And that what med schools kind of like to see out of people is that they are sort of well-rounded, that they're not just 22-year-old kids who want to make a lot of money, that it's it's really a, a part of a, a life that a person wants to sort of lead for people, and, and that the med schools will be interested in the fact that I'm a writer and an artist, and I have a sort of research background, too, so that I um, am, am coming in there not as a kind of a more complicated person, so that's, it's actually more appealing to them than someone who just took a lot of science classes and is just applying everywhere and has studied a lot but hasn't really lived a, a, a sort of a life. Okay, yet. okay, okay. So uh, educationally, because I know you probably have to have that foundation of like math and science in order to get into a medical school, but if you have an arts background, like do you have to take a bunch of like, uh, you know, um, what do you call them? Uh, core classes or something ahead of time, or can you? Are you ready to go to get into medical school? Uh, well, no, not quite ready to go. There are uh, a bunch of core classes, and every school that you apply to is going to want you to have to have taken different courses, but they mostly overlap. You need to take two chemis- two semesters of inorganic chemistry, uh, two semesters of organic chemistry, uh, biochemistry. Uh, calculus in some cases, uh, statistics and physics and biology. And I don't, I have one genetics class uh, from my undergrad, so I have a lot of catching up to do. It'll take, I think, including summer semesters, it'll take about five or uh, five semesters is my plan, five or six semesters. So, um, you know, and I don't mind doing the learning now. I enjoyed science classes when I was in high school. I just, that wasn't really my uh, career goal at that point. So I didn't 
pursue it much beyond that. Um, so, yeah, right now I'm going back to UW-Milwaukee um, starting this summer as a pre-med certification student, and then I don't actually have to get certified. I just need to get sort of all the classes under my belt that I need to take the big test for medical school, which is called the MCAT, and then to, to be able to perform well on that and to have all these prerequisites sort of taken care of. Holy, okay, so and this is a five-year process, just this preliminary stuff? Five semesters. Five semesters, so, five semesters. Yeah, so. which includes the summer. So it's it's really this semester, uh, the next two, the fall and spring semesters, the semester after that, and then the next fall semester. Okay. So it's, 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 it's compressed pretty um, quickly. And then in the spring of 2000, uh, yeah, spring of 2016, I'll be studying for the MCAT, take it in early in the summer and apply do interviews and probably know before the end of 2016 where I'm going to be going in 2017. Wow. Okay. So do you have, are you going to do like student loans and stuff for all this stuff? Do medical schools give scholarships or what's the, how do you manage that part of it? Uh, well, medical schools don't really uh, sort of, they just, you know, want you to have the classes. They don't care how you get them. They just, you have to have them. Uh, so there's no real scholarships for it. I wish there were. Um, it's not like an MFA. It's not like an MFA. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's not like an MFA. It's not like scholarships I got even, um, or like a teaching assistantship. There's no, there's no kind of money like that. But um, yeah, there's loans still. Cause technically, I'm a second undergrad degree student, so there's um, federal loans that I'm available for. The financial aid process has been really complicated because of a glitch in a database that that nobody can resolve. It just got resolved today. So there's a big delay in me finding out how much financial aid I'm actually going to get. So I, I was emailing the um, woman in financial aid this morning saying, you know, I, I need to kind of know how much sort of financial aid I'm going to get because I, I can't take these classes this summer. And then then I get an award in August for how much I'm supposed to have for the summer, and it's not enough to pay for the classes. And I already took them, and I can't kind of return them to the store. So I, I, I need to kind of know that I'm going to get enough loan money to be able to cover the classes. Wow. That's cool, man. That's a big decision. And then the, why why the conversion to Judaism? How did that all happen? Well, it, I sort of have, I took a class, a class my senior, my my final semester in college. Um, there, it was a Catholic school. There was a um, kind of, it, it was in the uh, program. You had to take two classes in religion. And I sort of, my mother, um, I, I, for my mother telling me horror stories about Catholicism and have not really having religious parents, I <laughs> didn't want to take the standard uh, classes, so I took uh, Religions of Asia, which was interesting, and then Contemporary Judaism, which I, I felt then a really kind of strong pull, like like if I ever, you know, a religious person, this is what I would do, you know, and, and then... I never really acted upon it, and then there were sort of other opportunities in the intervening years to, to, to do it, and I thought, well, no, I'm not really a religious person. And then just last fall, just kind of thinking about my life and thinking about things, I just it sort of it, it felt like a kind of the right time to go for it. And so I, I kind of uh, contacted the same synagogue that taught the class, and they have a Tuesday night class, and I have done a ton of reading, and I'm, I'm actually meeting with a rabbi later this afternoon as part of the ongoing um, sort of year-long study process. And, um, yeah, there's a lot that I just really sort of... Well, well, yeah, well, what is it? What is it about Judaism? I don't know I don't know uh, very much about it. Uh, I was raised Catholic, and I can tell you horror stories, too. 
Uh, yeah, no, I mean, and I'm not knocking Catholicism because it does wonderful things for a lot of people. Oh, I, but... I, I'm knocking it, so it's okay. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, I mean, it's like I, I, I don't want to be the kind of person who's knocking people or knocking religions or knocking whatever. Right. Um, so, but no, contemporary Judaism it just it has this sort of ethical core to it, um, and it also has this big sort of extended family kind of community feeling to it. So it, it's really, it has this sort of allure of, of joining a big family of, of, of people that, you know, you want to, they're just sort of right away, like, come on in, in the door, sit down, have a dinner with us. You know, they're, they're, um, nobody's really, um, it's not a, a very much a, I mean, if you're an Orthodox Jew or Hasidic, then you have thousands of rules to follow, um, and you've memorized all the rules. All the it's called halacha, um, and you you do this on that and that. You don't turn the lights on on certain days. It's just it's very complicated and and very sort of stringent. But um, I'm converting to Reform Judaism, which there's some interdenominational conflict, but it's it's basically a very liberal, very uh, socially progressive um, sort of wing of Judaism. So it's very open to, um, like, the fact that I'm gay, there's no sort of reluctance about that. It, and that, you know, I first asked the rabbi in my first meeting, like, what, what's the sort of verdict on that? And he said, there's, you know, they're starting an LGBT Jewish group in Milwaukee, because, you know, they, they're completely fine with, you know, with, with anything. And, you know, they're, um, it, it's, it's, it's a welcoming family, it's a kind of community that I've been looking for, because I don't really have a lot of friends in Milwaukee, and also just the the kind of faith and the ritual aspect to it that it, it doesn't sort of take my whole life over. But it, there, there's definitely stuff that I do every day, stuff that I do every week, and it, um, that's kind of comforting too. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, that's the thing about religion is that like I get tripped up at the level of dogma and hypocrisy. Um, you know, things get like Catholicism is just my you know personal experience, but there, there's a lot of rules and there's a lot of, you know, it's all well documented. But I think that, um, you know, when you turn away from that or if that's not for you, you know, the, the function that religion performs, which I think is probably its most vital, is, is something you talked about with regard to community, because I think there's a, a dire lack of that in contemporary life and i think you know there's any number of uh books about it and you know it's been it's been written about ad nauseum but i mean i i feel that lack it'd be like it'd be nice to walk into a place and just have like a community of people that you you know could connect to somehow and feel you know i don't know like a deep sense of commonality with and i guess you i, I mean are you feeling that even though you don't know these people is it that friendly yeah, uh, it, it really is that friendly. I, I <clears throat> um, am a, a, a shy kind of person, so <clears throat> excuse me. I'm a shy kind of person. So there's a the seder, the Passover seder happened um, earlier in April, and there, they have a second seder. Usually, you have it in your home with your family, and then there, there's a congregation one, which was this catered formal dinner. And I, I don't know how to do catered formal dinner, so I was looking up. YouTube etiquette things, um, you know, like what fork is for what, and so I was nervous about that, but I, I went, and it was, I had a great time, it was it just, I was sitting next to a rabbi, and we were talking about The Clash, like, you know, which were our favorite Joe Strummer albums, and, you know, it was very, um, it, it, it's just very sort of laid back and, and welcoming, and there's, it, it's joyful, basically, um, there's, you know, there's solemnity to it, but, um, you know, like Shabbat service, there's a, a lot of singing, 
this, you know, sort of recognition of, of you know, people who are sick, people who need help. There's, it's a very humane kind of thing. It's, it's focused on really um, making people feel better, helping people out. Uh, so, and that really is it's kind of one of the big appeals to me. You sold me. I'm going to convert. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> It, it's not as easy as maybe walking into a like a Lutheran church and just saying, "Hey, I believe in Jesus, um, and I'm good to go." Give me a Bible. It's the year of study. You, you have to read a lot of history books. You go before a panel of judges. You have to do a ritual baptism. I have to do a ritual circumcision, which which is going to be interesting. And wait, um, wait, wait, wait! You had to get circumcised. No, I didn't have to get. So I was already. I'm already circumcised. So it's a ritual circumcision. So it's just a drop of blood. Um, so wait a minute, they, they, they cut your penis? <laughs> well, no, no, they don't cut it, they just jab it with a needle. Oh my God. Like how many, yeah, pe- how I, many, how many people are involved in this? It's just like the rabbi and you or? It, well, it's a doctor who does it. So it's oh, not okay. just somebody coming, kind of coming in with like a sewing needle and saying, hey, hold still. You know, it's, it's, you know they, they, they get a doctor. I go to the doctor with the rabbi. My family doctor is actually an Orthodox Jew, so he, he kind of knows the deal. And... So I probably will come, my rabbi will come with me to my family doctor and we'll okay, do it. And then the, you need sort of the, the proof of the drop of blood for the panel of judges. And Wait, the panel what, of judges... What does that mean? They need you to cut your dick to... I don't, see, that's the part of it where I'd be like, okay, like, I don't know if I can go there. <laughs> like, I don't understand well, the yeah. point. What's the point? Well, circumcision is just, it's, um, it's one of those things that um, it's kind of like kosher. There's... It's it's in the Bible, but it's kind of a because I told you so rule. It's I mean there are actually some sort of um, cleanliness and actual sort of social uh, setting apart reasons for it that that probably actually got it started in the tribe of people who sort of became the Jews. But in the Bible, it just it's part of the covenant that God makes with the first Jew, Abraham. He says, "Okay, you've got to you know circumcise yourself and everybody in your family, including your servants." all the male members, and, and so Abraham does, and, and um, just becomes tradition from then on. I, I, I don't know the exact explanation for it. It's it's a good question. Um, Did you have any trepidation? Were you like, were you ever just like, okay, this might be a deal breaker, or were you were you just gung-ho? You're like, okay, let's do it. I was like, okay, let's do it. I mean, it's, it's like one drop of blood is, is nothing. It's I mean, I, had, I, I used to have these vertiginous migraines, and, and the pain from that, the pain from having a gallstone attack, where I'm just, like, on the floor, on my knees, pounding on the floor, wheezing, because I'm in so much pain, I'm going to pass out. Like, one drop of blood is, like, nothing. If it's, if it's meaningful to me in a religious way, and it is, then, then it's nothing compared to other kinds of pain that I've in my life so did you when you go in for this like not to not to harp on this too much but <laughs> it's, it's i'm experiencing like uh secondary trauma here like when you go in did you watch this process happen you just close your eyes and let them do it like like or do you have to put do you have to be like reciting things or you know what i'm saying like i don't understand the actual ceremony well, um, well this the, uh, the, the ritual circumcision is it's kind of a an evidence thing it's not really a ritual there's there's not going to be any kind of chanting in Hebrew or anything, it's just sort of, you know, you get a small piece of gauze, you, know, you get a sterilized needle, the doctor does it, um, you get a drop of blood on the gauze, and then there's a thing called the Beit Din, um, which is Hebrew, I, I'm not sure what, it's Hebrew, I'm not sure what it means in, uh, in English, but it's just a panel of three, usually rabbis, who you, you go before and you offer your evidence, um, and then you 
sort of uh, just explain why you want to become a Jew and sort of what you know about Judaism, so they make sure you know what you're getting into. And um, then, you know, sort of they approve you, that you, you do the baptism, which in Hebrew is called a mikvah. And um, you, you do those things, and then you have a kind of small ceremony, and there's you, you probably some recite some Hebrew there. Um, and then that's kind of it. You're you're sort of official. Wow. Okay. And so, is there any like resistance, or I mean, because you know, you like it's a um, it's a cultural thing, but like you know, Jewish people who have been Jewish in their family, you know, going back through the centuries or whatever. Like when you come in and you're a convert and you're born into like what a Catholic family or whatever, like. Do, do you feel authentic? Do they treat you like as as um, like a full Jew? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, is there any kind of like yeah. hierarchy involved in that way? Yeah, it's actually there, it's a it's a it's kind of a law in in sort of Jewish culture that because in the Bible I haven't read the actual book, but there's the Book of Ruth that was added to the Bible sometime uh, around maybe 400. BCE, um, and um, it's basically about this woman who's not a Jew who follows her mother-in-law after her husband dies and, and joins the Jews and becomes a Jew. It's sort of, um, and she becomes the great grandmother of the King David, who's the greatest of Jewish kings, and it's sort of an object lesson that um, when you're deciding to actually do this, it's not just like you kind of were born into it and it's just the natural thing for you, you're really making a commitment. So it's it's kind of against the rules for any Jews that are sort of natural Jews to kind of bring it up for you and kind of remind you you're a convert. Once you're in the doors, you're a Jew like everybody else. I mean, I don't have the same life experience of growing up going to a lot of seders or, or doing uh, Sukkot or Rosh Hashanah or Hanukkah. But, you know, once it's, it's kind of forbidden for anyone to kind of really ever confront me about the fact that I... Um, used to be not Jewish. Okay, so like do you culturally, are you, I mean, are you culturally identifying as Jewish and, you know, with a, a level, I mean, in a way that uh, you, you obviously weren't before, like do you find yourself more interested in like uh, issues pertaining to Israel? Do you know what I'm saying? Like how, do, how does that affect your own sense of identity? Uh, well, really I still am sort of working through, um, and as this young rabbi who I'm working with on the conversion, I, I go in and I, I have, you know, about four pages of single, single-space pages of questions, like, like 35 different questions, just based on the reading I've been doing. Like, well, okay, this says this, but then this contradicts it, so what's the actual rule for this? And, you know, it, it sort of told me at one point, stop reading stuff about Judaism. You've read, you've read enough, you've read plenty, you've read too much can just sort of relax and and kind of go to the class and, and hang out don't don't um you're kind of overdoing it <laughs> um so i i I'm, I'm very sort of intense about anything i do so i i'm really sort of i'm reading a lot i i'm uh, um because i'll be going to UWM, i can sort of slide in a class in biblical hebrew this fall um so i can sort of understand some of the prayers and uh, what's actually being said and um so i just you know, once I go for something, I go all in, and uh, so I've just been doing this, and I, it, it's not so much that I can identify as a, as a different kind of person now, it's just that um, this is uh, just a, it's this is just who I am now. I mean, I would like to visit Israel, where I never had considered it before, but the whole political history of Israel and Palestine and the Middle East is, is fraught with just... I mean, everybody's got blood on their hands on on and on every single side. So it's I, I, I'm not just a, a some sort of 
Zionist, like, oh, Israel's right about everything. They should just attack everybody. You know, I, I have a lot of doubts about um, about political uh, stuff. You know, but that's sort of my um, freedom as a Jew is to question everything. That's that's what Jews do all the time. Just constantly ask questions, like, well, okay, if this is true, then what about this? And and it's sort of kind of that. It's very. There's a ton of books you can read because everybody's written commentary about everybody's commentary about everything. <laughs> and you can, I, I've literally seen, they're called a Chumash, and it's a, it's a, it's a, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and they're the size of encyclopedias, uh, if you remember how the big those are, because it has about one half of a sentence on per page, and then the rest is really, is, is commentary in really tiny font by uh, a whole bunch of people across 2,000 years, um, just like about what, what one, what four words mean in the Bible. That's how exhaustively people have studied the Torah and studied stuff around the Torah, and it, it's a very sort of literary religion that appealed to me, too. There's, there's a lot of books. Um, it's a very book-based kind of thing. It's it's not just um, you go in and someone tells you what rules are and, and you sort of follow the rules. You go in and you you can you study. You you can learn stuff. You can um, learn from whoever you decide to learn from. Um, you, you have a lot of freedom, but it's a very sort of um, it, it's a very sort of the resources are there for you to just I, I could read and read and read and not have exhaustively read anything about even just the Torah for the rest of my life. And that kind of appeals to me that people are that invested in figuring stuff out and applying it to their lives and, and giving it a sort of um, also a kind of a literary angle to it. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And, and I think, like too, like a lot of times um, it can be easy to be dismissive of uh, religion, some more than others. Um, you know, I've, I've gone through phases of my life where I've been in that mode, but... I think that there, it's kind of foolish to look at these traditions and to look at all the scholarship and theology and, uh, you know, all the different uh, points of view and uh, the studies that people have done and to not, like, stand on the shoulders of those people and, and to take advantage of that. I mean, I, I guess it can be sometimes, I feel like a lot of it gets overlaid with extraneous stuff, and so it can be hard to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff, but if you can find a good thread or like a good stack of books um it seems a little silly not to take advantage of something of that nature whether it's judaism or something else yeah i mean that's that's my approach with everything it's just sort of research it as fully as i can possibly research it and that's what i've been doing you know and uh you know everything i've been reading it's just it, it's basically this it comes down to this sort of ethical mandate and just you're supposed to be a good person you're supposed to do good things for other people and and that's kind of the driving force behind everything. It's not that you even. It's not that you're just obeying God. It, it, it's just you're supposed to be a good person and do good things for other people. And I can, I like I can get behind that. That sounds that makes sense to me. It, it it's more focused on the here and now than on sort of you know what's going to happen in eternity or or whatever. There's not even a consensus about that in Judaism. So. Um, the focus is on, okay, what do we do right now to help the most people with the most kind of stuff? Um, so, yeah, it, it's very, it, it, it's like, it, it, that's kind of, uh, in a nutshell, what, what, a lot of what appeals to me. Yeah, well, I mean, I, yeah, because it's like, it's, I always get down with um, spiritual teachings that, uh, like, focus at the level of action as opposed to the level of belief. 
Um, you know, like when, when the, it's like, you know, you are what you do. Like that makes sense to me uh, way more than like, you know, this is a set of beliefs and this is how you've got to be. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's so, definitely not like that. So what about your family? What do they think of all this? Like, are they have to be, um, uh, I mean, were they, was there any resistance or were they questioning you when you told them you were going to convert to Judaism? Well, family is sort of progressively shrunk and shrunk and shrunk throughout my life. Um, so really it was always just immediate family. My father passed away when I was 10, so that left my mother and my sister. Um, and we have, I have a bunch of cousins on my mother's side who are evil and criminal and, um, you know, wait, wait it, how so? How so? Like, what do you mean? I, I don't, I don't really want to um, get into the kind of horrible things that they did to my mother, but just consider the fact that my mother grew up on a farm in upper Michigan and she had PTSD by the time she was 18. Oh, and, Jesus. Yeah. So, so, and the church was involved in that. So, um, you know, she, uh, she had a very hard life. And so it was basically my mother and me and my sister, um, my mother and I were always really close. Um, my sister has one daughter, um, my niece Rowan. And um, so basically my family right now is my, my sister and my niece. And then I have cousins in Kentucky from my father's side of the family that I talk to um, and on kind of almost a daily basis. And everybody involved is, is, it's not a lot of people involved, but everybody's really supportive. Is your mother still alive? Uh, no, she actually, one of the reasons I, I moved back to Milwaukee is to kind of help take care of her, and she actually passed away in 2012. Okay, she did. So, like, that's, uh, I mean, because like, you think about, like, the conversion to Judaism, the decision to go to medical school, you've lost your mother, um, you know, you have gone through a lot, and you've made some big changes. Like, did you, like, did you ever hit, like, a depression? Were you ever... Um, really struggling with that because when somebody makes like a big life change or a big spiritual shift in their life, a lot of times that's um, prefaced uh, by suffering, you know, like by some sort of intense suffering. Like, did you ever have like a really dark time that you then emerged out of to get to this point? Or was it kind of like a, a slow, steady build? Uh, no, yeah. Well, I can sort of explain my really dark time. It lasted from about the age of six to about the age of 36. Um, I just, it was never, I mean, I, I, I was sort of gloomy. I mean, I had, it was as much anxiety as it was depression. It was even probably more anxiety, but I just was in a constant state of alarm for about 30 years about everything and anything and just sort of coming into Judaism and then now having this plan for my life going forward with medical school and everybody who's a doctor going to says, yeah, you'll have no problem. Just take the classes. You'll go get into college. And once you're in medical school, it's just, you're kind of on the train track. You just go forward. So, um, you know, now that I have this kind of scheme for my life and I, I know I can support myself. I know I can support my writing and my art. I know I can, do good things for other people. I know I can have this community that I can reach to if I, I need to. And I've had to reach to them for, for some things. And, and they're very giving and, and, and welcoming. And I haven't even converted yet, much less joined the synagogue. So I, um, um, it, it just sort of, you know, I, I went through a really, the darkest time of my life was after my mother died, was, was taking care of her once she had cancer and then, sort of the year after she died, but then I, I just sort of some some kind of private stuff that I don't really want to get into happened, and I just sort of 
it started this shift in, in my anxiety started to go away and my depression kind of just just kind of floated away and I, I just I, I don't really I still have problems with anxiety but I just those those problems are just not really all that much part of my life anymore okay so I don't want I mean I don't want to make you talk about things you don't want to talk about but I'm a little confused because you say stuff happened and then this anxiety started to disperse. Like, can you, can you clarify it all? Like, I mean, what, what happened? I, I want to know so I can disperse mine. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean, it, the reason I'm kind of withholding this is because I don't want to come across as lunatic because, you know, maybe I'm a little nutty, but I'm not a complete lunatic, but it just kind of spiritual experiences, the stuff that science doesn't explain, stuff that me trying to reason through it, like, okay, this happened, and then this happened, and had this dream, and, you know, it, it couldn't, you could sort of explain it away, but I couldn't really ever get it to nudge, I couldn't, because I, I try to figure everything out, I try to, down to the last detail, analyze everything, and then there's stuff that happened to me last fall that was just not analyzable, and it was very galvanizing, so. Like, like, what did you see, did you, I mean, was it supernatural? Well, I mean, supernatural is a kind of a questionable thing in, in, in Judaism. There's still, you know, kind of a debate about whether God is even sort of, you know, still in the building. Like, did he sort of deliver the Torah, and then he sort of kind of went on his merry way, and, and, and Jews are just sort of left to, to follow the rules and be good people? Or, you know, there's there's a lot of debate about that. But, um, you know, it's just, I, I guess you could say supernatural, but uh, not supernatural in a kind of, like, um, superhero or... Like I saw, like angels or anything like that. Nothing of, of that kind of grade of of you know nothing nothing that would be all that really fascinating to discuss, unfortunately. But um, yeah, just just um, some coincidences, uh, two dreams, and usually I don't pay attention to dreams because I don't really ever remember them. I had two really crystal clear ones, and I just thought, you know, this this isn't going to hurt to check out Judaism. It's not going to hurt to. Uh, start to sort of think about a plan for the rest of my life, and so it, it's not. It kind of took me out of the you know, daily grief for my mother, and um, gave me stuff to think about for the future. And and you know, because of that stuff, I sort of started getting things together, getting my life together, and you know, both in the present and with a plan for the future. So, um, <clears throat> well, I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad this is a cool moment to be talking to you. Then you know. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I mean, I'm not a happy-go-lucky person, but this is kind of the best I probably really felt in my life. I mean, the the, the medical thing to really um, that that's kind of at the core of, of all the other kind of misery is that um, I've uh, what you, they don't call it Asperger's syndrome anymore, but it's I'm on the autism spectrum uh, of of sort of autistic disorders. So. When you're autistic and nobody diagnoses you and you grow up in your childhood, it's, it's really bumpy because of that. Not at home, but at school. And, and then you continue to have problems with people your whole life and you don't know why. And you eventually get diagnosed and there's no cure. There's no help for it. So you're, and you struggle with this thing. It produces a lot of depression. produces a lot of anxiety, especially anxiety. Um, and But I, I just, you know, it sort of... You get older, you have perspective on life, you have a lot of life experiences. I've had a lot of rough things happen to me. I'm not sort of claiming that I'm a martyr versus somebody else who's homeless and has an alcohol problem. I mean, obviously, many people in the world have it much worse than I do, but my life hasn't been a cakewalk, and you know, I'm still kind of chugging. 
along. And, and, you know, I sort of, it's not like I feel like I won something, but I just sort of feel like I finally kind of got it together. I finally kind of figured something out that I can't even really articulate to you. I just sort of kind of figured something out that just enabled me to sort of move forward and stuff going in circles. Yeah. That sounds awesome. So, uh, this Asperger's thing, like how did it, I don't understand it super well. Like how did it manifest in your childhood? Well, it's just it's uh, um, what the problems are. That it's it's a lot of nonverbal and communicative and social. Um, with disfluency is pretty kind of mildly. Um, people with more severe autism just usually they don't talk. They're nonverbal. They have repetitive sort of uh, habits and, and stereotyped movements. Um, there's just a, a big gap in, in being able to sort of communicate with other people, especially face to face, you know, one on one with with groups. Um, it's not social anxiety. It's just you know, if it, if I went to the the kind of snacks that follow service on on Friday night, I wouldn't be able to make conversation. Not because I would be too nervous to. I just literally would not be able to think of anything to say. I would have to go home and kind of think of possible things to say and then do a chess match of like, okay, here are the possible responses. And so here are my responses to those responses and those responses could lead to that. And you kind of have to map things out in order to just sort of navigate in a kind of very chaotic social world. That's been the main thing for me is just learning how to interact with people who are not in my immediate family. Um, um, how to sort of not, uh, how to just sort of, fig, you know, figure out basic things and social skills and, and communication skills. I, I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting better at it. Because I'm, yeah, you're I'm, doing great it, on this. I mean, you know, like I would have never known. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it very sort of, it can get kind of, um, I, I mean, I, I'm working on a research paper right now. It's just basically people have, People with autism, especially adults, especially with milder autism, have a lot of trouble with the kind of conversation that I just described. But there's the Internet. So everybody who's autistic, who has Internet access, is on the Internet as a kind of their primary social site because you don't have to worry about face-to-face and body language and responses. And someone sends you a message on a message board, you can take two days to think of a response. And, and it's, it's, it's much more... Kind of like it's kind of ideally it's this utopia for people with autism because it removes all the communication blocks that we have just you know going through the world daily uh, in our sort of daily lives. So uh, people with autism, you know, on the phone it's a lot easier because it's just you know not kind of we're not sitting in a crowded restaurant or something where I'm just overwhelmed with sensations and and, and things like that. I'm just speaking to one voice on a phone. I'm sitting in my apartment where I'm comfortable um, and so I can focus better. And uh, if this were an email exchange, I would be able to even give you more sort of articulate answers uh, relatively quickly just because writing is, it comes easier to people with autism than speech. Okay. So there's no medication or treatment for this? No, there's, there's kind of intervention things that you, if, if they catch you when you're young, they can do these different sorts of social skills training. Um, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of quack medicine involved with it, with like hyperbaric chambers and, and just all this sort of crazy stuff that, that doesn't do anything. Um, it's basically, if you catch the kid early enough, you can kind of train them with some basic social skills that, that, that'll help a lot. But there's no, no real, real medication, no real kind of fix to it. So, okay, so when you were like a little kid, 
Um, did your folks know that, like, did you get a diagnosis early or was it just sort of like, what's wrong with him? And did you have, I mean, you said you had trouble at school. So how did the, the other, you know, other kids and teachers, uh, they must not have treated you well because they didn't know what was going on with you. Uh, yeah, basically. I, I mean, I was bullied by the kids really severely until sixth grade when I, 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 I it was sort of a total knockout. I cold cocked a kid who stole my hat and he fell off of a kind of a hill of snow and smacked his head on the ground and was out for a couple minutes. And once word of that spread, this was before you know you get expelled for that kind of thing. This is back in the 80s. No one cares. Um, so once that spread, the bullying from the students stopped, but the teachers uh, still were eager to kind of knock me around because what happened was in the school district I was in, they they give you an IQ test to, and a reading test to, when you're in preschool to sort of judge where you're at and how you're going to do. And I tested really well. I tested kind of more than really well. So following like a trail around me all throughout school, it's like, oh, He's the really smart one. He's the he's the super genius guy. So um, it, it was just an easy target. I was this really awkward, overweight, you know, geeky little kid. Um, so I was just this target, and I just couldn't get things right ever. I mean, I got straight A's, but I couldn't ever socially get things right. I couldn't, you know, recess was terrifying because it was chaotic, and gym class was was, was, was <laughs> <laughs> just a comedy of errors because autistic people are just not very coordinated as as a rule. Um, but yeah, so it, so it was just this. I, I didn't get diagnosed until I was in my like early twenties, and it just was this sort of the thing is, well, he's so intelligent. Why is he acting so strangely? Yeah. And just a lot of responses to that that weren't necessarily helpful responses. Okay, so I want to ask because you know there's obviously the, the downsides and the struggles that come with uh, having this condition. But uh, and forgive me if this is like a, a silly question, but uh, you know I find I I think I feel like I've read or have been aware of a lot of people who are on the spectrum who uh, are extremely intelligent and test super highly. Like, are there upsides in terms of like cognition or? brain power to, you know, having this particular genetic makeup or whatever, or is that? Uh, well, I mean, it's it sort of, if you, if you, if you matched it with the general population, you wouldn't find too much of a variation. What you would find is that the people who tend to be more on the smarter side tend to be a lot more on the smarter side and that the people who tend to be more sort of handicapped tend to be a lot more handicapped with right. autism. So there's a big, there's a big leap at both ends, and, and in the middle, it's just sort of just like the average population. So people who are on the milder end and happen to be intelligent just happen to be maybe really intelligent. And it's just sort of a character trait of, uh, of us is we're very um, intensely driven people. Like if I want to find out about train schedules in England, I'm going to find out how everything I can possibly know, I'm going to memorize it all. And it doesn't even matter whether I need to use it or not, but if I want to know something, if I want to do something, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. It's a, it's, a, it's a stubbornness I kind of got from my mother, but I also, it's this kind of stubbornness I was born with, um, you know, that I could just really intensely pursue whatever happens to interest me. Yeah. Wow. That's, an, yeah, that, that seems useful in a way. I mean, I guess, but you probably learn a lot of stuff you don't ultimately need, but, um, I don't know if you're traveling. It'd be nice to know the schedule <laughs> and to have it memorized. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I pulled that from just a kind of classic example of people with autism of having these kind of monomaniacal pursuits um, that aren't necessarily always useful. But I mean, it just 
you know, I, people told me when I was a kid, you know, hey, you're really good at writing stories. You're really good at writing these poems. You're really good at interpreting these poems and these stories and this, these novels. You know, you're, you know, um, you, you should, you should take a look at this. You know, so I started writing seriously when I was in college and, you know, I, I, I loved it because it, it was this realm here where I'm writing and if there are rules, there are rules that I make up. Excuse me. There's, it's not anybody else's rules. It, it's not these rules that I can't figure out. It's it's my rules. So it's sort of you know I get to set up the rules, and there are still rules. So you have a coherent story or novel or whatever. But um, you, you you get a kind of freedom uh, that that in writing that and, and in making art that you don't necessarily get in your daily life when you're in the checkout lane and you um, are struggling to make eye contact with cashier and you're trying to think of like, okay, uh, how, uh, so how are you? Uh, and uh, yeah, it's really nice outside. And, and uh, oh yeah, um, uh, have a good day. Uh, uh, thanks. You know, like just kind of, you know, wandering through that. Um, there's, there's none of that sort of um, inhibition when you're writing or making art. So that's why I sort of, at first, uh, because I was, the, the other kind of problem with my childhood is I was really gifted at music. I, I sort of picked up a clarinet in sixth grade and I kind of got it down. So, so there's expectation throughout high school and middle school that I was going to be a professional clarinetist. I was this kind of semi-prodigy kid. And I got burned out by the time I was a junior in high school and playing the clarinet like every day, a couple hours a day, the same music. Because there's not a lot of literature for that music literature for clarinetists. So, uh, Kat, wait, did you pick up a clarinet when you're in sixth grade and like, like you can immediately play songs? Uh, uh, pretty much. And, and then, you know, I, could, I learned most of the woodwind instruments and the brass instruments. The only instruments that I can't figure out are flute, which I just can't. I just can't get it right the way you are supposed to kind of blow across the the, the kind of opening for the, the, the uh, to make the um, wavelengths um, and so I could never get flute and I could never um, string instruments it's just too much kind of manual dexterity um, can never figure those out either. But okay, you could play all the brass instruments and most of the woodwinds. <laughs> well, no, I, I I learned them one by one when I was in middle school and high school because. There was this thing where it was kind of a program where you had lessons um, or you had a sort of band practice that was kind of scheduled in your schedule. Um, so you just got to miss a class every once in a while to go to the band room and go practice. But my friends and I quickly learned that you could kind of game the system and, and claim that, oh, you know, twice a day maybe. Like, oh, yeah, I can't come to this class because I have to go to the the band, uh, the practice time and get a lesson. And so I spent a lot of seventh and eighth grade, especially, um, lying to get out of classes. So I could, um, go, you know, practice the clarinet and hang out in the band room and not be around, um, people and, and not be sitting in class and being bored or and being uncomfortable. Okay. Um, so like, what, like, do you, do you have any idea? Can you articulate what it is that you understand about a musical instrument or is it just some sort of intuitive, innate thing? Like, how do you how do you learn it so quickly? It was just an intuitive, innate thing, and it, it happened to really to be the clarinet because I had a bassoon, and I was pretty good at it. But they didn't have enough clarinet players, and I, I didn't really like lugging around this bassoon. And so they switched me to clarinet, and then everyone just sort of 
you know, I remember once, I think I was in seven and eighth grade, I was studying an etude. Um, it was just a study for clarinet to sort of help your kind of scales and workouts and stuff. And I was going through it before practice started, and I got to the end of the room was silent. And I look around, and every single person in the room is staring at me. And I think, you know, holy, holy shit, what did I do wrong? I did something wrong, and I have no idea what I did wrong. And, and the band director just turns to me and she, and she says, how is it that you know how to do that? And, and people were just, just floored. And I was just like, well, you, if you're naturally good at it, something and you like doing it, you do it a lot. So I, I practiced clarinet a lot when I was a kid. You know, it was a way for me to, a, a different way for me to escape, you know, kind of social situations and to escape um, things where I didn't know what the rules were. You know, when I was in college, I was in a lot of plays. I'm not the best actor in the world, but it's a system where you kind of know what all the rules are. You know what you're supposed to say, right? And and what the other person's going to say back to you. So it's 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 you know it it, it was a world I could live in comfortably. So um, so clarinet was kind of like that for me. And then what about your like sexual identity? Because you have the autism spectrum thing, and then you have. And all the all that accompanies it, you know, in terms of social difficulty, um, you know, I don't know what your home life was like, or like how, like, were you closeted for a while? Did, did that like play into difficulties that you had as a child? Um, it was actually, I guess, the most unorthodox kind of sexual history as an adolescent that you could possibly imagine. I basically, um, I mean, it. it, it because I was autistic, it took me until my until I was around 19, 19 or 20 to really think, hey, I think I'm actually gay. I think I'm not straight or bi. I think I'm, I think I'm attracted to men. It, it took that long for me to work it out. And then it was like, okay, I went through a period of shock, like, a, you know, oh, no, what, what am I going to do? Um, what are people going to think? You know, what do I do about this? And so my obvious response to it, um, which is, to everything is I just read a ton about it. I researched it. That, you know, that was my sort of education as a gay man. It was just to do a lot of reading, especially queer theory, like this advanced stuff I'm reading and I haven't even come out of the closet. Like, like, be, being, like being gay for dummies? <laughs> well, no, it, more like sort of the sophisticated semiotics of um, homosexuality and 19th century literature, masked and disguised in Henry James story. You know, like, like, you know, really sophisticated stuff where you had to have a dictionary because they were using these axiomatic principles and rules that were based on these theorists like Foucault and Judith Butler and Eve Kosofsky, Sedgwick, uh, especially her, just um, kind of the theory of, of gay sexuality. You know, so, so I learned the theory first before I learned any practice. And, you know, eventually after college, I came out to my mother. Um, she was like, you know, I kind of knew. Um, but, of course, I don't care that you're gay. I love you. And then I came out to my sister, and it was the same deal. And then I sort of slowly got comfortable with with sort of being gay uh, um, and eventually disclosing it to other people. And then what what about, like, you know, you said in, in college you were acting. Like, where did you go to school? I, well, the, the plan was for me to go to the Oberlin Conservatory of Music, so originally the idea that I was going to go there for clarinet, but I switched it up uh, because I had started writing music, classical music. So I, I got in to Oberlin as a double degree student. I was going to get a BA in English and a bachelor's of music in uh, classical composition. 
and I lasted about eight weeks and had kind of a total freak out and came home and didn't leave the house for six months. Wait, why did you freak um, out? Just uh, it was too much. Just, it was just too much. It, it was just uh, you know, it's like again, nobody knew I was autistic. Nobody knew the good idea is to try to go somewhere where you make slow changes like that, not go somewhere where it's an eight-hour drive away and you don't have a car and you don't know anybody. It's kind of the the worst kind of situation to kind of put someone like me in. Uh, so um, yeah, I didn't even go well, and I, I also realized classical composition these these kids they're sort of they have tutors and they're doing all this counterpoint and it's not really my approach to it i was listening to a lot of industrial music and punk and and that was informing the classical music that i was writing i wasn't listening to all that much classical music and i figured hey i can kind of forget this you know writing in good keep but the music i I love music i read music album reviews music news every day i um you know for the this magazine i'm working for now i write essays mainly uh, about pop music i've only managed to produce one so far but um i just what magazine um, uh it's called entropy um entropy.org uh it's an online magazine by uh janice lee and peter curious um, uh, and I went to school with Janice at CalArts and, uh, yeah, it's a great, it's kind of a general culture and literary magazine just launched a couple of months ago. Okay. So you go home after you drop out of Oberlin, you said you didn't leave the house for a while. <laughs> like how long are we talking? Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, like I got home in October and I think the first time I really remember it because it was a kind of transformative album for me, but I found a coil album at the Best Buy in near Brown Deer in around February of, of uh, the following year. So I think from October to February, I didn't didn't really leave the house. Um, I was so depressed, and I um, was so agoraphobic that I, I just couldn't. And, you know, eventually my sister and my mother said, you know, just try going to Stritch, because that was where, where my sister was going to. It's this kind of third-tier Catholic college in uh, Milwaukee. And my sister was going there. She said, you know, it's not great, but it's okay. And they just said, well, you know, try try doing that. Do that for a year or two, and then you can transfer to somewhere like Northwestern or Lawrence, and you can finish up that way. And I never transferred. I, I just I got the VA from, from Stretch. And um, um, so, yeah, I have this. It's not the most it's kind of, you know, it's definitely not Ivy League. You know, um, it's, it's not the most not something I can really brag about my undergrad education. It wasn't really the best education you could get, but you know, that's what happened. And um, it, it sort of was this period of me slowly kind of coming into myself and slowly trying to figure out, you know, who I was and how that fit into the world. And then did you like, so and you, did you have a writing ambition and, and like a photography ambition uh, during that time? Like how did they each emerge? Um, well, with, with writing, I, I was writing poems in high school, but with full realization that I'm in high school. The poems I'm writing are going to be awful. They're just going to be awful. They're, you know, and I was interested in Dadaism and, and um, sort of text art, so I was making these kind of using uh, uh, like MS Paint to, to make these kind of constellations of letters and these different sort of visual poetry things before, well, before I knew what visual poetry was and. You know, I didn't keep any of that stuff because I thought this is just this is juvenilia. This is you know, I don't want to show any of this stuff, and I didn't keep anything from being an undergrad either. I mostly wrote poetry. Um, I didn't write. I start writing fiction until much later. And photography, I always wanted to take art classes um, when I was 
in college. I wanted to take art classes when I was in high school, but they were at the same time as band class, so you just couldn't. In in college, it was just sort of like you had to start with drawing, and there's with life drawing, and then you prove you learn how to draw, and then you can go on to painting, and then once you learn how to paint, you go on to sculpture, and then you have the option to do photography way later. And I was interested in photography, but I can't draw uh, at all or paint. Terrible. I and mean, just absolutely, well, I don't have at, at least there's something you can't do. <laughs> no, there's plenty of things I can't do. Trust me. Okay. Trust me. There's, there's many, 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 many things that I am absolutely terrible at, in, including drawing and painting. So, but I, and I just didn't have the money for a camera. And my mother was working long hours at a low-wage job just to keep the family floating. And we had social uh, security from my dad, um, the VA stuff, because he was in the Navy. Uh, but it, it, we kind of kept it together uh, until about 2002. And, um, and my mother had her own health issues. Uh, and so there's no money for me to get a camera. So after I graduate, uh, a friend of mine who is a theater major, she finds a point-and-shoot camera in the parking lot of the coffee shop she worked at. And she said, here, here's a camera. Go take some pictures. So I, just, I started doing it, and I thought, hey, I really love this. This is another thing where I'm in charge. This is where I, I'm kind of making the rules. Um, and, um, yeah, it was, it was just a nice um, thing to sort of um, to discover that, you know, this is another thing that I don't know if I'm ever going to get great at it, but it's something that I'm, you know, doing, I can, I'm, I'm doing the pointing and the shooting. It, it's me, and then I go can go work on the photograph in Photoshop and learn that. It, it's a kind of a, um, not a solitary thing, but it's a more kind of, um, a thing that doesn't rely too much on uh, on a ton of social interaction. So are you worried? Okay, so when it comes to, and I mean, writing is obviously the same. You know, you're in control. You don't have to do a ton of interacting, to say the least. But like when it comes to your medical career, um, you know, like patient interaction, dealing with other doctors, possibly working in a hospital environment or some such thing. Um, is that anything that you are concerned about or had to like really consider when you decided to make that leap? Well, um, it, not so much social interaction because I can kind of think on my feet enough um, now to get by. You know, I, I just spent the last two days in the hospital shadowing a neuropsychologist, and so I was in the room with you know a, a woman who had a cyst in her brain the size of a uh, kind of a, like a when you go to a hotel and get that small bar of soap. You know, a cyst that was kind of the size and shape of that in in the left frontal cortex of her brain, and I, I saw her get all these neuropsychology tests, to kind of see where she was at and what she could do and what she couldn't do. It was just fascinating stuff, and so I'm just mostly watching now. But I just one of the things I kind of really learned from Judaism and, and converting is a, a, a much bigger sense of empathy for other people. That you know, I, I might not be able to understand other people's motivations or, or or how they interact with each other, but you know, I can still sort of. I mean, love is kind of a um, kind of a, it, it. You know, just a, for me to kind of stop here and claim that I discovered a love for humanity is kind of weird, um, but that's kind of the best way to sum it up. You know, that, you know, hey, there's a world beyond me. You know, I've focused on stuff I can do in my world. So now there's this other world, and I can kind of manage it. So you know, what can I do for other people in the world? Um, so, I, yeah, it just it's been a very interesting last seven months.
Wow, I'll say. Well, it's been really fascinating talking with you. I didn't know all this was going on, so it's been like a pleasant surprise and like super, super interesting. And uh, I congratulate you, you know, because like making those kinds of changes and taking things on like that with the kind of focus and energy that you've done is admirable. And I certainly wish you luck with everything. Oh, thanks very much. All right, folks, that's it. There you go. That's Nicholas Greider. Wasn't that a good one? Go get his story collection. It's called Misadventure. It's available now from A Strange Object. You can find Nicholas online at nicholasgreider.com. He's on Facebook. He's on Twitter. His handle is at NGRDR. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Go get that app, the free official Other People app. It's available wherever apps are available. Download that thing. Uh, upload that thing, whatever you do, get the app and then you can sign up for premium right there within the app. And when you sign up for premium, you get access to everything, the entire archives, all the episodes, including my conversations with authors like George Saunders, Jonathan Lethem, Cheryl Strayed, Edward Dantica, uh, Sheila Hetty, you name it. So do that. Uh, I mentioned a, a robbery at the top of the show. There was like an armed robbery in my neighborhood last night. It's not worth getting into. Some asshole robbed some woman, shot her in the leg. She's okay. I mean, she's not okay, but she didn't pass away. Thank God. Fucking people. I don't like that. Please remember that Botticelli spent his last years on welfare and that Beethoven died of dropsy after suffering from pneumonia and jaundice. That's it for now. Thanks again to Nicholas Greider. Thanks to you guys for listening. I'll be back again soon. I shall return. All right. Let's just let this music play. I'm serious about this. I'm just going to let it play. We'll let the music be the guide. Okay, that's it. (laughs) 